Welcome to the HC Insider Podcast, a podcast dedicated to the commodities sector and the people within it. I'm your host, Paul Chapman. Today we're talking about how businesses can tackle decarbonization, in particular, their power consumption. Most businesses of a certain scale are acquiring renewable power on long-term power purchase agreements. However, is now the time where organizations should even consider investing in and owning their own renewable production? Is it build or buy? Our guest is Toby Stanway. Toby is the founder and CEO of InvestNet Zero, a business focused on providing a strategic approach to companies on how they can directly invest in renewable energy at a utility scale. Toby has 20 years in the energy industry, in economics and planning, and has overseen investments in large-scale renewable projects for a number of organizations. Toby, thanks for joining. Oh, it's an absolute pleasure. Thank you, Paul. It's a, it's a privilege to be invited on. I've listened to a number of your podcasts and enjoyed them a lot and some really great speakers. So it's, it's great to be here. Uh, thank you. Um, well, I'm looking forward to this discussion. So essentially, we're talking about businesses of all sizes now face the pressure to decarbonize. And a significant focus on that is is how they um, power their businesses. We're talking about that environment and that choice. Essentially, whether you purchase your, your green electricity, whether you offset it, or whether you actually indeed produce it yourself. That's, there's a lot behind that discussion. Before we dig into the how, can you give us some sense of the why? What, where is this pressure to decarbonize coming from for businesses around the world, and particularly we're talking here, Europe, and and how does that manifest itself? Well, first of all, I, I think it's important to say that, that decarbonization falls within a, a universe of environmental and social social governance issues. But the key to carbon, and, and one of the reasons why it's it's so universal, is that it is the most calculable part of those ESGs. You, know, you burn a certain amount of hydrocarbon, you're going to produce a certain amount of CO2, sort of chemically defined. Whereas if you were to look at what would be sustainable practice, in one industry, it's going to vary hugely from a geography or, or, or between industries. So carbon is universal across across sectors and across industry. But the pressure comes from all angles. It's coming from consumers. It's coming from business partners. It's coming from finance providers and investors. And, of course, it's coming from, from government regulations and, and reporting requirements. And uh, I, I think the pressure really comes in, in, in terms of incentives. There are some positive incentives, I, I think, especially right now. So, yeah, in the financing sphere, I, I think you're seeing you're seeing banks and companies being explicit in their reporting that they're going to receive discounts in financing arrangements for good performance. And there is some markup potential on the value of product. But I think both of those are going to be short lived. For now, you have the case of being um, an exceptional performer, to which that applies. But once most people are on, on, on the same sort of path, you're, it's going to be a more negative incentive. Sorry, what do you mean by sort of initial markup in you know, the value of the product? So I, I get the financing piece. There are discounts out there. Well, if you can differentiate your project to be carbon neutral or green, take aluminium, for example. I know it's been reported that you've got a 14 dollar per tonne of CO2 markup on the value of some aluminium sold in the market as a result of it, its carbon qualities. London... Petroleum sold the per- first third-party certified crude, crude cargo the other month. And while they did 
receive market price for it. They stated that. They also outlined that they wanted a markup and we expected a markup in the future. These are a few examples. I think historically, especially in the agri-sector, you saw prices increase for organic bio-labeling. And you also see some, some, some schemes like fair trade, which are not about the quality of the product, but the way in which it's produced, as it were. So historically, there has been some markup on that product. But I think I think overall and for the future, it's mostly going to be negative, negative incentives. And that was referenced by your latest podcast of Jonathan Kingsman, you know, the merchants of grain. And when he was talking about the agribusiness, we're moving to this, this, this concept of a license to operate, a social license to operate. In fact, the phrase sustainable license to operate was a phrase used by the International Resource Panel's publication, Mineral Resource Governance in the, in the, in the 21st century. So I think it's about license to operate. It's about maintaining investments. It's not put out of business by business partners. Not having a license to operate seems extreme, but I think it's actually more more subtle than that. If you're in a case where the government controls uh, resources, has property rights, resources, gets to decide who produces it. Take the Norwegian upstream oil industry, for example. It's been made very clear that new licensing rounds are dependent on a company's environmental record and, and prospects. So if you want to, to, to win new licensing rounds, if you're an explorer, you have to have a robust environmental policy in place in order to continue with, you, with your business model. That applies to any government industry where the government has, the, has property right and can decide who produces it. But it also applies in the private supply chains. Scope one and scope two are important elements of decarbonisation. And that's where the companies focus on right now. But also there's an increasing push into scope three, which includes the supply chain. Companies are already being explicit about the expectations on their supply chain that they meet the same environmental standards. But actually, that's quite that's quite complicated, and maybe we, we'll explore that later on. Yeah. So it's also fair to say that whilst the, we're calling talking prescient right now, there's almost an argument, particularly in Europe, for example, and for certain scale organisations, that it's no longer really a choice. Right? They have to have these. ESG goals, they have to have this license to operate you talk about. I guess we're talking about this, the choice between offsets, which in some ways is diminishing, and I think we'll get onto that, but between ultimately buying green power or producing it yourself. Before we dig into how you tackle those two options, can you give us some sense of the market background to this, and in particular, the timings? Yeah, no, Absolutely. Um, in fact, offsetting comes due with timing as well. So I'm, I'm sort of happy to talk about offsetting briefly now. It is allowed. It's a perfectly legitimate way of offsetting your any carbon that you do have. But it's really seen as a as a last an option of last resort in that it doesn't eliminate fossil fuel use and it's a it's a short term solution. If you are doing it, one of the issues to watch is the quality of the forest, as we talked about in the earlier question. Decarbonisation is part of that wider ESG universe. And within that universe, biodiversity and sustainable agriculture has been long established. And what you're beginning to see with the offsetting forestry is that you're also going to have to pay attention to the quality of those woods and the biodiversity that it encourages. But yes, in general, it's seen as an option of last resort. And the idea is to eliminate the, the fossil fuel use in the first instance. So yeah, no timing and price. Well, the key timing is 2050. Well, that's the net net zero target date, and especially in Europe. 
And that, that's sort of a given. I really think the next important date is really 2030. And why is that significant? And why, why is that important? It's understood that you're not going to arrive at the 31st of December 2049 and flick a switch and all of a sudden be carbon neutral. And that's why it's referred to as the, the carbon transition. The most common goal is, is the 1.5 degrees Celsius change mitigation pathways. And 2030 is the first reference point for those pathways. So the IPCC has a, a 45% decline from 2010 levels, which means by then we ought to have achieved that in order to be on a good path to restrict temperature rises by 1.5 degrees by the time we're carbon neutral in 2050. And the EU has its separate targets, which is the 55% decline from the 1990 levels. And what this means is that 2030 is the hard focus of most corporate targets. And for some of the best performers, it's, it's earlier and maybe they've already achieved it or they've got a carbon neutral target for 2025. But what we're seeing about this timing is that 2030 is the, is, is the hard focus for generally for scope one and two, which is the, the emissions which are under your direct control or more control from scope two is the in, in, sorry, indirect over which you have control. So generally, the aim is to get one's own house in order and then starts tackling the scope three, which includes the supply chain. As I said, you see, you've already seen those big companies who have already got their house in order starting on that trend about starting to tackle the supply chain. But that's going to that's gonna be the case for a lot more companies in 2030. Which would be an accelerator, right? Because that's the point at which your license to operate becomes very much a concrete factor as people start to tackle scope three. Exactly. I, th I think that's definitely the case. And if not even earlier, I think that's certainly going to be the case at which any sort of positive incentive is going to be very hard to, to source. Okay, so the 2030 is this sort of crucial date. What's going to happen to the price of renewable electricity in that period of time? Well, I think, I think, I think this push for 2030 is going to have a, a very serious effect on the price of renewable electricity. I think there's going to be significant upward pressure on the price and there's various elements in that you know i think we ought to acknowledge that there is there's going to be a decline in technology prices and by that i mean we've seen utility scale onshore wind down 70 percent over the last 10 years utility scale of solar down came down 90 percent in terms of the fundamental technical cost over the last 10 years but that's that's not a linear change you know it's very steep at the beginning not so steep very shallow over the last few years so you wouldn't expect similar declines in the future. Offshore wind, that's got potential for further cost reduction. And that's really based on turbine size and, and the growing experience. But these technical changes, the, these technical gains, they're, they're going to be counteracted, especially onshore, by geographical restrictions. Specifically, got limited numbers of locations for onshore, solar onshore, wind sites. And uh, offshore, well, it's not necessarily a local practicality to have offshore wind farms, in, depending on which region in, in Europe you're, or the world you are. And there's also there's engineering supply constraints in terms of parts and, and labour in the industry. And ultimately, demand is going to lead over that supply. Last week, the EU came out with some details of its new Green New Deal. And they are the details there are still to be freshed out. But... One thing is the phasing out of carbon credits, is the extension of ETS, 
uh, and the zero emissions uh, for new cars coming up. So whatever the detailed outcome after the negotiations are forthcoming, you know, but direction's only one way, and that is increasing the demand for electricity. And then, you know, look at the forecast for the price of carbon. And uh, everyone, as we said, focusing on achieving their targets for 2030. You know, I, I think all this is going to feed through into electricity prices. Uh, and that's why you're seeing rising price forecasts in real terms. And I think on top of that, that industry fundamentals for electricity, you also look at, at the spectrum, returning spectrum inflation. And the headline on the FT yesterday was that the, the ECB was going to accept and encourage inflation. And I think many of your listeners are going to know their own commodity market fields now very well and have already seen that introduced recently. So I guess there's a real chance of what you might call a, a super cycle for renewable electricity coming up. Yeah, I find such a profound statement in just the, the notes that you and I have been sharing back and forth that I don't think that's necessarily been, well, certainly, I, you know, maybe from my vantage point hasn't been noted yet, right? There seems to be this continuing idea that the the price of that power is going to go down because of the the nature of renewable energies, right? Um, but actually, the installation of, of renewable assets, those prices are, are going to go up quite significantly if, if, as you point out, you've suddenly got this huge competition, everything from the parts through to the labor. So I think that's a, a really clear backdrop to these decisions that are have already been taken by many companies and are right there, the executive committee level discussions today. And you've mentioned offsetting, but you've really got this choice between purchasing and producing. The simpler of those two, of course, is purchasing. Can you just walk us through what we mean by that? You know, what the type of discussion any business is having when it comes to purchasing green power? to tackle specifically this decarbonization, this really tangible part of the overall ESG universe that is providing these companies this license to operate. Yeah, absolutely. So if you're if you a company, you can go out into the market and you can buy renewable electricity created by somebody else. There are two basic ways of doing it. You can do it in the open market under a renewables tariff. And that means that the guarantees of origin are effectively traced back to the source. But then you're paying the sort of day-to-day price. Or you can come to an arrangement, a power purchase agreement, normally with a specific project. What you're doing there is to offer a fixed price over a fixed period for a fixed amount of, of power. But effectively, you're still, you're still offering a price to somebody else. They're both legitimate. Right now, as a preference for new build PPAs, the power purchase agreements. And there's some logic to that in terms of reporting as well in that if you're simply buying off the market, and again, it's to say they're both perfectly legitimate ways to do it, it could be seen that you're displacing demand. You're not adding to the stock and you're merely forcing somebody else to use the non-renewable electricity. So the connection between your financing through the purchasing and the establishment of new capacity is more remote. Whereas with a PPA, you're more seen as directly enabling capital investment in new renewable energy stock, which is needed. And it's been made very clear by the EU and by by governments that public investment's not sufficient and that private investment is needed. Now, for me, and it could be, this is potentially sort of arguable and a little controversial, is that given the economics now, renewable generation, in terms of utility scale onshore and utility scale 
solar project in, in the right regions. Being competitive with combined cycle gas turbines, well, wouldn't that be what would be built anyway? So yes, you're funding it, but it would have been built anyway, so if you're effectively just buying the output. But as I say, that's not really being seen as the case right now. PPA has been massively encouraged. It's on trend for a few years now. You've seen many company announcements that it's, it's interesting because sometimes these company announcements are a little ambiguous. A company will say on the press release they've invested in X percent of a, a renewable project. But when you dig into the detail, you see that they've simply entered the PPA and committed to buy a percentage of the electricity from the project over a certain amount of years. That seems to me it's, it's not investment in the same way. It's, it's paying for something at a Greek price. PPA is very popular. As a company, you get to say you've invested in renewable energy. You have price stability. As an economist, you'd say that's not the same as de-risking. What you're doing is exchanging one error type for another. You could outperform or underperform the market. And it does seem simple. From a company point of view, you're not owning the asset. But there are downsides to PPAs. The number one downside is the price. The European Composite Renewable PPA price at the moment is around 45 euros per megawatt hour. And that's higher if you're in, in Germany or Italy or Poland or the UK. Maybe you're looking at 50 euros per megawatt hour. And if you, if you, if you compare that to the underlying cost of a plant, well, if you, if you did a calculation at 45 euros per megawatt hour and assumed you would, on an undiscounted basis, in fact, spend money on the cost of the plant instead, it, you could gain, on a 30-year plant, you could gain maybe 40 years of free electricity. <laughs> so, you know, that's quite a significant difference in, in the cost mm. to pay. And the second issue is duration. And for me, this is actually the most one of the most important ones, because most PPAs are 10, maybe max 15 years long. Now, there are some exceptional cases if someone has some market power and maybe you're going to get a longer one. But really, that's that's the exception. So we're talking mostly 10, 10 years long of PPA. And that, that puts you in a situation when you come to 2030. Can we just go back to it? And I just really want to nail it because you do see these press releases. They are termed as investments. But your argument, as I understand it, is that essentially these are facilities, assets that would have been built anyway. So ultimately the result is that the price of, you know, you're, you're not adding new load to the system. I think the answer to that is yes and no. It is perfectly legitimate. At the moment, it is seen that yes, you are helping to finance that extra finance is needed. And it's been encouraged because it's seen as adding that extra finance. But from an economic point of view, if that's going to be built in any case, you know, wouldn't you expect that to be built? And the sales value of that electricity is, is just the same to the investor. So yes, you are, you are encouraging financing. You're helping a financial institution with low risk tolerance to invest because there's a guaranteed offtake price over a, uh, the, the reasonable future to provide a return on their investment. So no, you, you, you are financing. You are helping to increase the stock. But I think it's it's more remote. It's not the most unquestionable way of doing so, I would say. Yeah. So the two challenges are, actually, you might have been better off investing and building the asset in a traditional sense, because then you get a lot, much longer lifetime. And also, most of these PPAs are rolling off, if you did it today, at 2030, and you could find yourself with a bit of a price, a sticker shock. Yeah, I think so. 
<laughs> let's I mean, let's look at two scenarios based on the choice you made. Let's say let's say today reality will include variations on on the theme of this, of course. But I think let's look at two scenarios as sort of illustrative idea. So let's say today you took out a, a PPA to get you to your renewable energy targets, and let's say you want that to be 100% renewable electricity. So great, you meet your target through sourcing green electricity for your own operations to to 2020. Uh, to 20, out to 2030, let's say you take a PPA at length. You can say you can contribute positively to the energy mix under the current approaches, and that's and that's perfectly legitimate. And then maybe you would say, and this, you see a lot of this in a lot of sustainability targets and a lot of reports, that after 2030, you'll start to concentrate on your supply chain once you've got your own house in orders. Uh, so that, that, that's very common among sustainable reporting. So you've done that. And, that, and that's fine. But now it's 2030. And what's happening? Well, OK, your PPA comes to an end, but you still have to source renewable electricity. And, and now you really have to, because that's uh, as that, where we're talking about the choice, not having a choice to do it, but a choice about the timing. A lot of the variation is where you're going to be in 2030 in terms of reducing your own carbon, your, your own carbon emissions. But past 2030, well, this is when the massive negative incentives are going to come along. This is when the, the regulatory incentives, this is where client companies are now focusing on their supply chains as well, other companies. And everyone's in the same situation. So for me, you're going to be going back out into the market where the prices are going to be high. You know, maybe they're going to be up at 60 euros per megawatt in real terms um, because of all the supply demand equations that we were talking about earlier. What you'll find is effectively you've treaded water for 10 years, and you're, ex you're faced with exactly the same choice that you have today. But now you're in a more expensive world. And the irony is, by doing that, your PPA at 45 euros per megawatt hour, if you think about the, the calculation we went through earlier on the, on the amount of, in inverted commas, free electricity you can get, you've effectively nearly paid back, perhaps, the investment fund that's built the, the wind farm on which you've taken the PPA on their original investment. So you're going to double pay in one way or the other. Maybe you're going to want to buy the wind farm as an investment fund seeks an exit. Or are you going to pay for another PPA for the next 10 years? And that's not a, not a situation that I see as optimal. Yeah, OK. So the alternative option, and I, and I will come on to, I guess, the, the challenges to this, because certainly there's scale here required, is invest directly you know, and actually own that asset to a varying degree. Can you navigate that for us? What does it mean to, to actually do that, to get, it, get into the power business, so to speak? So what does it look like if you invest directly now? You can do it on the same scale. You're trying to meet 100% target of carbon neutrality. Well, you can invest. Um, these were things would take about two years to build. So say late 23, early 24, you'd be in a situation to meet that target. You can report that you've met your 100% target in the same way as you've done the PPA. You can have contributed to the energy mix, but in this case, you've done it more directly. It's less remote via a PPA option. And that's about as gold-plated as you get in terms of not being accused of displacing demand. The real difference is what happens in 2030. So in 2030, for me, having invested and owning that asset, you're now in a position of strength. You're not forced to re-engage with a very expensive and, and busy market. You can continue to be carbon neutral out to 2050. Most of these plants now have a, a, a lifeline of, of 30 years. 
without actually doing anything else. You can concentrate on your, your core business. And it has some other advantages as well. You're naturally hedged against the price and you are sitting on a valuable asset with a high point forward value. And you may even be in a position to help your supply chain. And this is something that's really interesting to me, reading a lot of sustainability reports over the last months. Some of the bigger companies have already followed this strategy and they're in a position to offer special rates that they've stated to their supply chain. And well, for me, looking at the outside, that's potentially a double-edged coin. Uh, are they helping you or is it a, is it a Venus flytrap helping the fly, <laughs> their supplier? Uh, I think I, I, know, I know which side I'd rather be on, as it were, as, as, as a company. I think it's probably a, a good place to be in, be in, in a position to dictate those terms. So there is, a, of course, there's a downside of the investment, and that is the upfront payment over an uh, investment over time. And that comes down to your, your discount rate as a company. But that's not something that I think should be a barrier to a company with, with a, a reasonable cost of capital. I can visualize and understand the scenario of a, a huge corporation, AAA rated, oodles of land and office space that's no longer being filled that can you, know, you can put various renewable assets on, for example, and wholly own that investment. There is this, you and I have talked prior to this, of course, about, you know, there's also the opportunity to invest in consortiums. Can you just define for us the various ways you can invest directly without it tripping over into being effectively a PPA? Well, absolutely. There's a lot of cases. You can put solar on your roof, a commercial industrial solar on your rooftop. Um, you can have a small scale wind turbine, perhaps. On, like, some universities have it on campus. They've got the university turbine. Some companies have a small cell term and a lot of companies have rooftop solar. But the thing that comes out of, of reading the electricity data that's available nowadays is that you know the, these commercial industrial rooftops in general don't solve the problem. They fulfill a small percentage of the needs. Fundamentally on a cost basis, they don't work out. If you, if you compare the long run cost of energy of a utility scale onshore wind, or utility scale solar versus the cost of commercial industrial rooftop solar. We're talking a difference of perhaps 100 euros per megawatt hour on an LCOE basis. They're just not economic. And for most large industry, they're not going to be a sufficient capacity to cover your need. Can you just define for us what you mean by your options when it becomes to invest directly at this utility scale? So we're talking, obviously, utility scale and small rooftop projects and so forth aren't really covering an organization's needs or for a variety of reasons you just mentioned. Can you just, before we dig into these barriers to entry, what do you mean by invest directly at utility scale? What really are your options out there? What I, what I mean by that is, is having ownership of the utility scale renewables project. And a lot of the bigger companies are doing that already. Or but that's if, if you have the demand need to cover that. A lot of companies won't have the electricity offtake demand to require investment in a utility scale project, which say for a, a wind farm might start 60 megawatts. And the reason why it starts at that sort of level of capacity is because it's at that level of capacity is where you're getting the lowest cost availability, because that's where you're getting the larger turbines. Okay, so 
the large companies are able to go in and do this just wholesale themselves. You also have this option of going in with other organizations, right? Yes. Well, I think I think yes and no is the answer. You, you don't yet. It's something that companies are struggling to do, and for good reason. And I, I, I'll come on to that in, in the barriers to entry, really. But that's something that I think should be available and something I'm looking forward to making available. Yeah, okay. So right now, realistically, your options are beyond offsetting, going out there and, and doing a, a power purchase agreement, or you have scale enough going and building your own utility-scale exactly. renewable asset exactly. base, whatever it might be. And when you're building your own, I think I think we, we, we ought to be clear on this, you don't have to build it yourself. And that's a big part of de-risking as an investment. You can get the company, you can contract, you can offtake on an EPC basis, which effectively removes risk from the, the capital development stage. And for point forward, it was actually turbine availability guarantees, um, which de-risks the sort of operational uptime that you would expect to see. And you can also, you don't have to manage it yourself through owning it. You know, there's a management contract with potentially the same developer, but certainly not a professional operator who can do it on your behalf. So you're owning this in whatever form, either as an individual or a lot of the larger companies are nevertheless going in in partnership with funds on a 50-50 basis. That has an impact on the way in which you have to report the business segment as you don't have a controlling interest, a majority controlling interest at 50%. And you're doing that through a special purpose vehicle. Mm. But there's no reason why why people can't, you can't have more than two partners in that. And there's no reason why you can't own 20% of a, a special purpose vehicle. I mean, this, this is something we've seen in, in the offshore oil asset market. You can have a company own 5.75% of a very large offshore field. And the offshore field is operated on a JV, a, a joint venture agreement and, and, and an arrangement. And these are of a scale of financial investment, which are a lot larger than a wind farm development. And I think this is something that it is becoming a conversation about the barriers to entry, because this is about why these, some of these barriers are perceived, I think, and that they, they're, not, they're very easily surmountable. But I think it, it's, to, it's to do with the stage at the market we're at. It's fascinating because in a way, it's business 101, right? If you're in the business of making confection, you know, whatever, yeah. you shouldn't also be in the business of power generation, right? <laughs> but the analogy is that these assets are much more simple than a combined cycle or, God forbid, a, a nuclear power station. And the analogy is almost the discussion about do you own your office building or not? You don't necessarily need to operate it. But yeah. this idea now that these, due to the nature of renewable energy and the assets themselves, you can actually own these things. Um, they're relatively simple to put yeah. up. It costs two years, you know, and you get a pretty decent lifespan on them. And they're much less inherently risky and complex than traditional carbon generation. And so I guess there are these barriers. That, of course, not every human capital should not be building its own uh, renewable assets. <laughs> not least we couldn't afford it. But there are these barriers to entry. There are these considerations as to whether they're going to do this. Some organizations have already made this leap, as you say. And every day there's more announcements from within the energy industry itself, within you know commodity trading houses doing this. But there are these perceived barriers and there are these real barriers. Can you tackle the the perceived ones, I think not least is the idea. Well, yeah. 
before we get on to that, you've actually touched on to a couple of very interesting things there in, in, in your question that you've just just asked. And, and one is the sort of romanticization of, say, the energy industry as something something different, which I don't think is necessarily the case to any other input or, or supply that you might might want to run in your supply chain. But also the reliability of, of electricity compared to, say, using your own gas turbine. That's one of the things that is actually a huge benefit to offshore electrification in the Norwegian oil and gas industry, is that a lot of the planned and unplanned downtime is to do with gas turbine maintenance and downtime. And when, when your industry, as it is in oil, is, is about uptime, having a reliable connection, the onshore mains electricity supply can actually increase your uptime and and that's a big benefit and the other point you made there was about capital and concentrating on your core business and i think you know the cost of capital does come into the decision as to whether you want to invest in something up front rather than pay over time and that does provide the balance on the economics for you as a company but actually, there's really ways in which you can lower your financing costs across the board by, by taking the approach. And, and there's two elements to this. There's both the TCFD reporting that's not yet a requirement, but nevertheless is, is, is fairly common and will become more and more required. And the second is credit ratings agencies. And you have to show in both these cases your exposure to climate-related risk. Now, for most companies, that doesn't mean that your factory is going to be flooded by rising sea levels. That's not a reality. But for almost every company, it's it's about price risk in these commodities and these inputs. If you're an oil company, for example, you you might want to show that you're you're still healthy at the IEA's sustainable development price deck for oil, so to speak. So the credit ratings agencies and in your TCFD reporting, you're going to have to show your exposure to these higher, potentially higher prices and the price risks associated with your energy input. If you've got the PPS we discussed earlier that, 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 that stops in 2030, you can't demonstrate a solution to that long-term problem. If you've invested it and you're naturally hedged and you've invested something in a pricing region that's similar to your, your, your energy out, outtake, well, your answer to that is, it's not of concern to me what the price is. The price can be 80 euros per megawatt hour. It can be 100 euros per megawatt hour. You're naturally hedged against that. So it takes that risk off the table. And if that's going to help with your credit report, then maybe that's going to bump your credit rating up slightly. Maybe that's going to help with that. And maybe in turn, that will reduce your financing costs across the board from that point of view. And the other thing to say is, if you do need finance on your uh, an additional facility to do it. This is something that banks right now are really keen to do. And in fact, by meeting these ESG metrics, again, from a, from a bank's point of view, you can, and we mentioned it earlier, you can actually discount across on, on your margin, perhaps, across the board on your loan facility. And if you have half a billion, a billion of outstanding loan facility that you're utilizing, and you need 15 megawatts, 20 megawatts of capacity, well, as a rule of thumb, let's say 1.4 million euros per megawatt of capacity, well, you're going to be spending 20, maybe 30 million on this. It's not, it's not going to be the largest part of your capital expenditure, 
but you could actually lower your margin across the board. Yeah. So you could you could really benefit from that. And in an investor point of view, well, it's not necessarily going to be such a distraction in terms of the, the financing. They're saying well, you're no longer a core business. It is no longer a core business that we thought we were investing in because you've moved into energy. I just don't think it's going to be that significant for these for these larger companies. And I th- I think I think the positives that are going to come out of it from you as a company, from from showing you're demonstrating long-term planning and future planning, insuring yourself against these future risks, I think the benefits of doing that are going to outweigh the, the potentially negative you're, you're going out with your core business. And actually, as a manager, uh, as senior management, you're enabled to get on and concentrate on your core business because it's something that you've now taken off the table. Yeah, I mean, I think the organizations have always sought to integrate through their supply chains where it makes sense and ultimately the kind of the I come back to it the the sort of the headline reality is that suddenly owning your own power supply is feasible because it no longer requires you to own a huge coal plant or gas plant or yeah like I said a nuke right Very like these so. these things have simplified both <laughs> in scale and in complexity to a point where an organization can very simply own this. And and you've you talked about some of the, the perceived things. Actually, there are, you can do these EPC wraps, you, you know, you can guarantee turbine availability. What else, what other areas of, you know, when organizations are looking at this decision right now, what other, you know, what are other res- points of resistance that you're, because you're, I mean, on the face of it, it sounds like a very logical thing to do when you're at a certain scale type of size organization. I think the other consideration is is that it it seems like a long term commitment. I mean, you've invested in this project, so okay, we've established that you can actually de-risk the cost side of it and the performance side of it largely. But I think there's a perception that it's a long term commitment. Well, you've got a thirty year project, and I, and I would say, well, it's a long term problem. You know, the target is net zero in twenty fifty. It's a long term problem, and you need a long term solution. I think it's actually less. Because it's a fungible asset, it's less of a commitment than having someone put one of the arrangements on getting solar panels on your roof is to a third party will install it. They own that solar panel and they sell it back to you under the PPA over the over the 25 years on your roof. Now, the problem with that is if you want to change your roof, you've now got to adjust their property. And that's a problem because you sort of that's their, their ownership. Offsite, you typically scale. Not only is it cheaper, but it's actually a more fungible asset. So you, you can sell that down or, or in, in the secondary market, what I fully expect to emerge. So yes, it's a long-term solution, but it's a long-term problem that needs it. And I think it's actually a very tradable asset that you've got. And don't forget, I, I think a little while ago, a seven-year PPA was considered a long-term commitment and exceptional. And now that's certainly standard practice and, and we're, we're seeing, seeing longer ones. Yeah. Okay, so scale. How much are these things and at what point does it start to make sense for an organization if that's even a fair question? I think for the smallest companies, it's not going to be something that's going to be worthwhile because there are going to be some additional transaction costs rather than buying out of, out of the market. But I think if you say you need, if you've got a 15 megawatt, 20 megawatt capacity requirement, you can invest it with three, four other people into a large scale utility project. That is certainly going to be, in my opinion, worthwhile cost-wise. The smallest companies, and we come back to this cost of capital, and that is important, the very smallest companies with a small offtake aren't going to have the sort of cost of capital necessarily available to them. A larger company is certainly going to have something that's going to make it worthwhile. 
again, you, of a price you can invest, it actually becomes profitable um, in its own right, even before you've leveraged it against your own financing arrangement. So that's a good sense of scale. There are obviously other considerations, and it seems to me that in particular, only the, the mid-sized companies, however you define that, are really only going to get to do this if they can go in with other partners. As I understand it, that's not yet an established method, although we have certainly seen it, as you alluded to, in other, other energy verticals. Can you just sort of dig a bit more into into that and, and some of the other barriers before we sort of wrap up on the, the overall opportunity? Absolutely. Uh, f- for me, this is what represents the, the real barriers to entry. And, and it comes from both sides of the equation on the scale. For the developers, their preference is to deal with a, a single party. There's less risk of uh, someone pulling out. And someone who they can have repeat business with. You know, the savings to be made on the contractual structures, on having a reliable partner who you, you're familiar with. So from a developer point of view, they would like that. And from an internal company point of view, if energy is not core to your business and you only need a third of a utility scale wind farm effectively, you know, you, you're not going to want to employ an energy BD team within your organization. You're not going to want the distraction for your management. You're going to want, as you pointed to earlier, you're going to want to concentrate on your core business. And the smaller the scale, the more difficult it is to find the right size project. If you're a company who needs 500 megawatts of capacity, well, fine, you you can do three big deals and achieve 470 megawatts. The last 30 is going to be the difficult bit. And that's okay because you're you're pretty much almost there, sort of strategically, as it were. But if 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 you're if you've just got that thirty or twenty megawatt requirement, then you're immediately in the in the scaling problem without the backing of almost having achieved your your ability with your targets with the existing investments. So those are the real barriers to entry, and all these barriers really favour the bigger players, and that's why they're doing it. And for me. The solution is therefore to get over these real barriers to entry. And I guess it's what you would call democratizing the investment strategy. Someone, an organization like me can become that single point of ongoing business for the developer. We can undertake that scoping analysis work on behalf of the business. You've got to kiss a lot of frogs to find the prints of of the project that you want, as it were. And that takes a lot of time within an organization. And yeah, the idea is that you can you can invest in these largest, lowest cost utility scale projects by syndicating with other companies who are aligned sufficiently with your strategy. It's about getting over those real barriers to entry. Yeah. And, and that's what Invest Net Zero does, right? We should mention. Exactly. So I can hear listeners challenging me to challenge you on the question of common to all renewables intermittency and what that means for these organizations still relying on carbon sources of power in when the wind doesn't blow, etc. And it's also perhaps worthwhile as well, and, and this is definitely sort of uh, my simplistic mind, you're of course not consuming that specific electron that you produce from your asset wherever that might be based. No, they're both important points. Let's tackle the, the unreliability issue. The issue of unreliability is, is something that, is asked after a lot. But the point is that's that's fundamental to the new renewables market. 
and whether you own it or somebody else owns it is not going to change that fundamental problem. So for me, that's not an issue that makes a difference to whether you own it or, or not or, or purchase the electricity because that underlying backup need is still there. And you're right, you don't literally consume the electron that you produce in the electricity market. It's about network balance. And that, in a way, points you towards your, your second point of boundary issues, which is the difference between where your wind farm is and where you're consuming it. There's the rules, in, according to RE100, which is the, the very popular scheme with many large manufacturers, is you can locate your wind farm, in fact, anywhere within the wider European area and consume it in a different part of the European area because you are contributing to that network. Now, there are some issues around Europe in the short term about, about interconnection between various areas. And that's why you see price differences, say, between the Italian market, the Nordic market. And it's up to a company where they want to, what strategic decision they would like to make on that. If, if you want to make use of the natural price hedge to its most profitable use, you're going to want to position your, your generation unit in a similar pricing region, in a pricing region that's connected to your off-take. And that is going to the price similarity is going to depend on the interconnections and the existence of interconnections that exist and we saw very temporarily a real drop off in the norwegian price because there, there was an interruption to the interconnection to the continent so those were really low prices temporarily but over time one expects these interconnections to be developed and to expand because there's a natural logic to do it and it's certainly something that government and the European Union especially is pushing for. It's fascinating because I think like if I, my takeaway and I've really enjoyed the discussion it's been a lot of learning for me is that there's a couple of key foundations to this that you know are, are now being put in stark relief by you. One is these assets are now attainable of an attainable scale and price for businesses to invest in directly you know compared to again you know to trying to build a, a combined cycle plant secondly is this scenario that the price of power is probably going to go up as opposed to down because of the you know there's there's less and in particularly in europe there's less and less geographical space for these types of assets there's more and more competition for the the assets themselves and the the labor and the parts that go into it you know it struck me that it's now so these kind of decisions are now the same type of decision as do you build your own and own your own office space that kind of scenario but interestingly just like your office space in london or wherever it might be if you do own it these are probably going to be quite valuable assets in 2030 and whether that's simply from the uh, the price of power you can get from them or or as you mentioned earlier on a, a secondary market opening up and you can sell these assets on and there's a reason why private equity are are doing these things at uh, a, a fair clip right now Exactly. Yeah, it's been a fascinating discussion. It's been an absolute pleasure. I guess <laughs> I look forward to having you back on in 2029, and uh, we can we can stress <laughs> test some of the hypotheses. But um, I should say that uh, people can find you on LinkedIn, of course. But maybe you can share the your website and, and where to find you you exactly. Yes, my my, my website is investnetzero.com, and I look forward to hearing from you. Fantastic. 
Toby, thanks very much for your time. And uh, yeah, look forward to, uh, to a discussion in the future. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and want to support the show, please give us a positive review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. To find out more about HC Insider and Human Capital, a search firm dedicated to the commodities sector, go to www.hcinsider.global, where you'll find more original content on the commodities sector and more details on our offering as a search firm and our locations around the world. Thanks again for listening. Thank you.